Chapter Nine of Woodcraft by Nesmuk. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Phil Schempf. The Light Canoe and Double Blade. Various Canoes for Various Canoeists. Reasons for Preferring the Clinker Built Cedar. The canoe is coming to the front, and canoeing is gaining rapidly in popular favor, in spite of the disparaging remark that a canoe is a poor man's yacht. The canoe editor of Forest and Stream pertinently says, We may as properly call a bicycle the poor man's express train. But suppose it is the poor man's yacht. Are we to be disbarred from aquatic sports because we are not rich? Are we such weak flunkies as to be ashamed of poverty? Or to attempt shams and subterfuges to hide it? For myself, I freely accept the imputation. In common with nine-tenths of my fellow-citizens, I am poor, and the canoe is my yacht, as it would be if I were a millionaire. We are a nation of many millions, and comparatively few of us are rich enough to support a yacht, let alone the fact that not one man in fifty lives near enough to yachting waters to make such an acquisition desirable, or feasible even. It is different with a canoe. A man like myself can live in the backwoods, a hundred miles from a decent-sized inland lake, and much further from the sea-coast, and yet be an enthusiastic canoeist. For instance, last July I made my preparations for a canoe cruise, and spun out with as little delay as possible. I had pitched on the Adirondacks as cruising ground, and had more than 250 miles of railroads and buckboards to take before launching the canoe on Moose River. She was carried 13 miles over the Browns Track Road on the head of her skipper, cruised from the western side of the wilderness to the lower St. Regis on the east side, cruised back again by somewhat different route, was taken home to Pennsylvania on the cars, 250 miles, sent back to her builder, St. Lawrence County, New York, over 300 miles, thence by rail to New York City, where, the last I heard of her, she was on exhibition at the Forest and Stream office. She took her chances in the baggage car, with no special care, and is today, so far as I know, staunch and tight, with not a check in her frail siding. Such cruising can only be made in a very light canoe, and with a very light outfit. It was sometimes necessary to make several carries in one day, aggregating as much as ten miles, besides from fifteen to twenty miles under paddle. No heavy, decked, paddling or sailing canoe would have been available for such a trip with a man of ordinary muscle. The difference between a lone, independent cruise through an almost unbroken wilderness and cruising along civilized routes, where the canoeist can interview farmhouses and village groceries for supplies, getting gratuitous stonings from the small boy and much reviling from ye ancient mariner of the towpath, I say the difference is just immense. Whence it comes that I always prefer a very light open canoe, one that I can carry almost as easily as my hat and yet that will float me easily, buoyantly, and safely. And such a canoe was my last cruiser. She only weighed ten and one-half pounds when first launched, and after an all-summer rattling by land and water had only gained half a pound. I do not therefore advise anyone to buy a ten-and-a-half-pound canoe, although she would prove competent for a skillful lightweight. She was built to order as a test of lightness, and was the third experiment in that line. I have nothing to say against the really fine canoes that are in highest favor today. Were I fond of sailing and satisfied to cruise on routes where clearings are more plentiful than carries, I dare say I should run a Shadow or a Stella Maris at a cost of considerably more than a hundred dollars, though I should hardly call it a poor man's yacht. Much is being said and written at the present day as to the perfect canoe. One writer decides in favor of a pearl, 
15 by 31 and a half inches. In the same column, another says the perfect canoe does not exist. I should rather say there are several types of the modern canoe, each nearly perfect in its way and for the use to which it is best adapted. The perfect paddling canoe is by no means perfect under canvas and vice versa. The best cruiser is not a perfect racer, while neither of them is at all perfect as a paddling cruiser, where much carrying is to be done. The most perfect canoe for fishing and gunning around shallow marshy waters would be a very imperfect canoe for a rough and ready cruise of 100 miles through a strange wilderness, where a day's cruise will sometimes include a dozen miles of carrying. Believing as I do that the light single canoe with double-bladed paddle is bound to soon become a leading, if not the leading, feature in summer recreation, and having been a light canoeist for nearly fifty years, during the last twenty of which I experimented much with the view of reducing weight, perhaps I can give some hints that may help a younger man in the selection of a canoe which shall be safe, pleasant to ride, and not burdensome to carry. Let me promise that, up to four years ago, I was never able to get a canoe that entirely satisfied me as to weight and model. I bought the smallest birches I could find, procured a tiny Chippewa dugout from North Michigan, and once owned a kayak. They were all too heavy and they were cranky to a degree. About twenty years ago, I commenced making my own canoes. The construction was of the simplest, a twenty-two inch pine board for the bottom, plain to three-quarter of an inch thickness two wide half-inch boards for the sides, and two light oak stems, five pieces of wood in all. I found that the bend of the siding gave too much shear, for instance, if the siding was twelve inches wide. She would have a rise of twelve inches at stems, and less than five inches at center. But the flat bottom made her very stiff, and for river work she was better than anything I had yet tried. She was too heavy, however, always weighing from forty-five to fifty pounds, and awkward to carry. My last canoe of this style went down the Susquehanna with an ice jam in the spring of 79, and in the meantime canoeing began to loom up. The best paper in the country, which makes outdoor sport its specialty, devoted liberal space to canoeing, and skilled boat builders were advertising canoes of various models and widely different material. I commenced interviewing the builders by letter and studying catalogues carefully. There was a wide margin of choice. You could have lap streak, smooth skin, paper, veneer, or canvas. What I wanted was lightweight and a good model. I liked the Peterborough canoes. They were decidedly canoey. Also, the veneered racines, but neither of them talked of a 20-pound canoe. The Osgood folding canvas did, but I had some knowledge of canvas boats. I knew they could make her down to 20 pounds. How much would she weigh after being in the water a week, and how would she behave when swamped in the middle of a lake were questions to be asked for I always get swamped. One builder of cedar canoes thought he could make me the boat I wanted, inside of twenty pounds, clinker-built, and at my own risk, as he hardly believed in so light a boat. I sent him the order, and he turned out what is pretty well known in Brown's tract as the Nesmuk canoe. She weighed just seventeen pounds, thirteen three-quarter ounces, and was thought to be the lightest working canoe in existence. Her builder gave me some advice about stiffening her with braces, etc., if I found her too frail, and he never expected another like her. He builded better than he knew. She needed no bracing, and she was, as is, a staunch, seaworthy little model. I fell in love with her from the start. I had at last found the canoe that I could ride in rough water, sleep in afloat, and carry with ease for miles. I paddled her early and late mainly on the Fulton chain, but I also cruised her on Rackat Lake, Eagle, Utawana, Blue Mountain, and Forked Lakes. 
I paddled her until there were black and blue streaks along the muscles from wrist to elbow. Thank heaven I had found something that made me a boy again. Her log shows a cruise for 1880 of over 500 miles. As regards her capacity, she is now on Third Lake, Brownstract. James P. Fifield, a muscular young forge house guide of 6 feet 2 inches and 185 pounds weight, took her through the Fulton chain to Racket Lake last summer, and happening on his camp, Seventh Lake, last July, I asked him how she performed under his weight. He said, I never made the trip to Racket so lightly and easily in my life and as to the opinion of her builder he wrote me under the date of november eighteenth eighty three i thought when i built the nesmuk no one else would ever want one but now i build about a dozen of them a year great big men ladies and two i three schoolboys ride in them tis wonderful how few pounds of cedar rightly modelled and properly put together it takes to float a man just so mr builder that's what i said when i ordered her but few seemed to see it then the Nesmuk was by no means the ultimatum of lightness, and I ordered another six inches longer, two inches wider, and to weigh about fifteen pounds. When she came to hand she was a beauty, finished in oil and shellac, but she weighed sixteen pounds, and would not only carry me and my duffel, but could easily carry a passenger of my weight. I cruised her in the summer of eighty-one over the Fulton Chain, Racket Lake, Forked Lake, down the Racket River, and on Long Lake but her log only showed a record of 206 miles. The cruise that had been mapped for 600 miles was cut short by sickness, and I went into quarantine at the hostelry of Michael Sabatis. Slowly and feebly I crept back to the Fulton Chain, hung up at the forge house, and the cruise of the Susan Nipper was ended. Later in the season I sent for her, and she was forwarded by express, coming out over the fearful Brownstrack Road to Boonville, twenty-five and a half miles by buckboard. From Boonville home, she took her chances in the baggage car without protection and reached her destination without a check or scratch. She hangs in her slings under the porch, a thing of beauty and like many beauties a trifle frail, but staunch as the day I took her. Her proper lading is about 200 pounds. She can float 300 pounds. On my last and lightest venture, the Sari Camp, little more need be said. I will only add that a Mr. Dutton of Philadelphia got into her at the forge house and paddled her like an old canoeist, though it was his first experience with the double blade. He gave his age as sixty-four years and weight a hundred and forty pounds. Billy Cornell, a bright young guide, cruised her on Racket Lake quite as well as her owner could do it, and I thought she trimmed better with him. He paddled at a hundred and forty-one and a half pounds, which is just about her right lading, and she was only an experiment anyhow. I wanted to find out how light a canoe it took to drown her skipper, and I do not yet know. I never shall. But most of all, I desire to settle the question approximately, at least, of weight as regards canoe and canoeist. Many years ago, I became convinced that we were all, as canoeists, carrying and paddling just twice as much wood as was at all needful. And something more than a year since, I advanced the opinion in forest and stream that ten pounds of well-made cedar ought to carry one hundred pounds a man. The past season has more than proved it, but, as I may be a little exceptional, I leave myself out of the question, and have ordered my next canoe on lines and dimensions that, in my judgment, will be found nearly perfect for the average canoeist of 150 to 160 pounds. She will be much stronger than either of any other canoes, because few men would like a canoe so frail and limber that she can be sprung inward by hand pressure on the gunnels, as easily as a hat box. And many men are clumsy or careless with a boat while others are lubberly by nature. 
Her dimensions are length ten and a half feet, beam twenty six inches, rise at center nine inches, at seams fifteen inches, oval red elm ribs one inch apart, an inch home tumble, stems plumb and sharp, oak keel and keelson, clinker built of white cedar. Such a canoe will weigh about twenty two pounds and will do just as well for a man of one hundred and forty or one hundred and seventy pounds while even a light weight of a hundred and ten pounds ought to take her over a portage with a light elastic carrying frame without distress she will trim best however at about a hundred and sixty pounds for a welter say of some two hundred pounds add six inches to her length two inches to her beam and one inch rise at center the lightweight canoeist will find either of these two canoes will prove satisfactory that is ten feet in length weight sixteen pounds or ten and a half feet in length weight eighteen pounds either is capable of a hundred and sixty pounds and they are very steady and buoyant as i happen to know i dare say any first-class manufacturers will build canoes of these dimensions provide your canoe with a flooring of oilcloth three and a half feet long by fifteen inches wide punch holes in it and tie it neatly to the ribbing just where it will best protect the bottom from wear and danger use only a cushion for a seat and do not buy a fancy one with permanent stuffing but get six pence worth of good unbleached cotton cloth and have it sewed into a bag shape stuff the bag with fine browse dry grass or leaves settle it well together and fasten the opening end by turning it flatly back and using two or three pins you can empty it if you like when going over a carry and it makes a good pillow at night select a canoe that fits you just as you would a coat or hat a sixteen-pound canoe may fit me exactly, but would be a bad misfit for a man of a hundred and eighty pounds. And don't neglect the auxiliary paddle, or pudding stick, as my friends call it. The notion may be new to most canoeists, but will be found exceedingly handy and useful. It is simply a little one-handed paddle, weighing five to seven ounces, twenty to twenty-two inches long, with a blade three and a half inches wide. Work it out of half-inch cherry or maple, and find the blade down thin tie it to a rib with a slip-knot having the handle in easy reach and when you come to a narrow tortuous channel where shrubs and weeds crowd you on both sides take the double blade inboard and use the pudding stick and you can go almost anywhere a muskrat can in fishing for trout or floating deer remember you are dealing with the wary and that the broad blades are very showy in motion therefore on approaching a spring hole lay the double blade on the lily pads where you can pick it up when wanted and handle your canoe with the auxiliary on hooking a large fish, handle the rod with one hand, and with the other lay the canoe out into deep water, away from all entangling alliances. You may be surprised to find how easily, with a little practice, you can make a two-pound trout or bass tow the canoe the way you want it to go. In floating for deer, use the double blade only in making the passage to the ground. Then take it apart and lay it inboard, using only the little paddle to float with, tying it to a rib with a yard and a half of linen line on approaching a deer near enough to shoot let go the paddle leaving it to drift alongside while you attend to venison beneath the hemlock grim and dark where shrub and vine are intertwining our shanty stands well roofed with bark on which the cheerful blaze is shining the smoke ascends in spiral wreath with upward curve the sparks are trending the coffee kettle sings beneath where spark and smoke with leaves are blending and on the stream a light canoe floats like a freshly fallen feather a fairy thing that will not do for broader seas and stormy weather her sides no thicker than the shell of old bull's cremona fiddle the maul who rides her will do well to part his scalp lock in the middle 
Forest Runes, Nesmuk. End of chapter 9